You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, it's the dog adventures of Tintin and Man's Best Friend. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I'm a good boy. Such a good boy. And I am Thomas Mariani, and you know what? You did that intro so good. Here's a treat, Adam. Here you go. Who's the good boy? Who's the good boy? It's bacon. Yep, just like the classic commercial. Yeah, I remember that? There was the bacon, the bit, yeah, the bacon strips. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Bacon, make it bacon. You know. Topical, topical. <laughs> it's just like everyone on the internet is still making bacon memes because it's 2011. Everybody. Yep. <laughs> Adam, we're not the only good boys here. We have a guest here, a guest we haven't had in a very long time. He was our first guest, and uh, some might say one of our favorites. Don't tell the other ones. Uh, but he is a writer. He is uh, some sort of lizard creature in his own right. Uh, he is Mr. Executive producer. Exact, maybe executive producer. Who knows what he It is Mr. Sam Bertuxen. Sam, welcome back to the show. Hello. I'm back and stronger than ever. I'm practicing my NPR voice for this session. I hope everyone gets ready for my comeback tour. It's specifically for Man's Best Friend and Avengers of Tintin. Sam is rebranding as Ira Glass, basically. <laughs> like a lizard version yeah. of Ira Glass. I'm, I'm, wearing, I'm actually wearing a suit right now, and I'm wearing uh, a, a very spiffy glasses. I'm wearing a tuxedo, but it's just painted on my nude body. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That saves you a lot of money. Cut corners. Indeed. Yeah, granted, I, I use a lead-based paint, so I, I'm not feeling too well. But, you know. We'll see if he survives the show. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but Sam, uh, we wanted to have you back on for a while. And, uh, you know, we gave you a list of topics like we do for any guest. And uh, you were attached to what we initially had this as for you, which was just animal movies. Because uh, our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod uh, ended up picking in a poll between specifically movies featuring dogs or monkeys. And they ended up going with dog movies, which is the ultimate topic here. And uh, when we told you we were going to do that poll, you were very much rooting for dog movies. And admittingly, Adam, the most contentious poll maybe we've ever done for the show on Patreon. I, I, I know, and I love it. Does that not just speak about the type of work we do and our audience? That's true. That, that out of all the polls, dog and monkey movies is the one that's got the most heat on it. <laughs> World War II documentaries do not have as much weight as dog films. I guess it's that. So, Sam, like I was saying, you were really gung-ho for dog films before the poll even started. So, well, why dog films as opposed to monkey movies in particular? So, my impression is that when immediately I think of, like, a bad or good dog film in lieu of the theme for the show, I think of, like, bad dog films like Airbud. But I enjoy Airbud despite it being very silly and definitely being part of its time. 
and then the good doc films i don't know that many so maybe there are some new experiences because i've mostly seen really bad ones but i enjoy the bad ones so so yeah that's that's kind of where i, I stand i also have a couple dogs at home i love uh, all of them i'm sure i'm representing them well when i get to talk about man's best friend <laughs> in particular yes well uh, our bad feature as we'll get into but yeah i guess it's important to talk about as if we're dog people um i mean if you've been a long time listener to the show you might have heard me very poorly try to edit out dog barking in my uh particular half of the audio um because i do have a couple dogs here at the house over and uh adam i know you have cats but have you ever been a dog person oh sure sure i've had dogs too i you know my f- dog growing up was a labrador beagle mix he was small as a beagle but looked like a lab but he was about as wide as a truck but yeah no i've, I've had a lot of dogs growing up i love dogs uh, in fact i'm about to get two uh two dogs here in about a month i'm rehoming two eight-year-old um shih tzus that's really good to hear yeah that's nice it'll be nice i think in terms of cinema like the reason i kind of we kind of ultimately went with dogs and monkeys is because i would argue of all the animals that have been featured in movies obviously animals are featured a lot in various different films i'd argue dogs and monkeys are at least the most sort of uh, charismatic as stars necessarily on the screen because like you don't get that with cats because cats are very much like fuck off unless it's like a horror movie it's a black cat and even then they like screech at you and stuff like that, or like elephants, giraffes, exotic animals, stuff like that. They're not nearly as sort of like, a, they don't have as much of the star power as like a dog or a monkey would. And particularly with a dog, I mean, you have more movies based around dogs. You got like Lassies and Rin Tin Tins, ever since like early cinema. Can I ask you guys if either of you, is, since we're talking about cat movies, have either of you seen or heard of the film A Talking Cat? Oh, we've seen A Talking Cat. Sam yep. and I have seen A Talking Cat yes, together, oh, actually. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> we've seen it together. Yes, we have. <laughs> Starring Academy Award nominee yeah. Eric Roberts? Of course we have. I don't use this term a lot, but it is very much a cursed film. That might be the worst movie, one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> From David Decato, director of one of the Puppet Master movies we covered back on our Full Moon episode. Oh my god, he did... Uh, yeah, no, that was a bad movie. But anyways, go ahead. No, no, but would you guys agree generally that, like, especially dogs kind of uh, have a bit more screen presence than your average animal? Yeah, dogs have been a huge part of cinema for, oh, I don't know, ever. Uh, And like you said, you know, cats and horror movies, but there's major horror films that are centered just around dogs. Every buddy cop movie, the reckless one, has a dog that's his only friend. I mean, it's, it's all over. Yeah, dogs absolutely permeate cinema. Dogs are much easier to train, obviously, than cats normally are, because cats just don't give a fuck. Uh, cats just kind of do whatever they want on set. And sometimes you get classic films like A Talking Cat, where the cat is <laughs> doing an Oscar-caliber performance, but you don't get that all the time. So I understand why dogs are definitely picked for, for the big animal star. And then uh, same thing with uh, primates as well, uh, even though I, I am not a big fan with how chimpanzees are utilized on certain movie sets mainly because whenever you have a chimpanzee on set you have like an 80 to 85 percent chance of that going very south very fast yeah just ask the cast of speed racer with that monkey on set that was a baby monkey too yeah that's that's a big problem that they do. and anyway, that's even in general that's sort of a problem with animals and training them even dogs to some extent like i mean there's the classic rule in hollywood of like don't work with children or animals 
which I get, because, like, it's probably difficult to work with them on set, but also I can easily see them being mistreated, depending on the trainer. It can be a bit of a bummer subject, but we're covering two movies that utilize a lot more special effects stuff to kind of create dogs, uh, because at the end of our last episode, if you're new to the show, uh, we randomly picked a good and a bad feature based around the general idea of dog movies, or at least movies where a dog would play a major role. And so we have our two features. First, we'll be talking about our bad feature, Man's Best Friend, which Adam picked, which is a lot of, like, animatronic dogs, along with a couple of, like, practical real dogs. And uh, then we'll be talking about my good feature, The Adventures of Tintin, which has a big old CGI dog that uh, still acts pretty uh, canine-ish in its own way. Very diverse. Yes, that's true. Uh, the, the eras of dog uh, special effects technology are really represented with this double feature, just the progression, for sure. Uh, but let's get into first our bad feature, Man's Best Friend. Meet Max. Is this dog an innocent victim of the billion-dollar vivisection industry? He sits. See, Max is not your typical dog. Enhanced sight, stamina, the ability to climb with jaguar-like agility. He begs. What I am trying to tell you is that in the right hands, Max can save thousands of lives. <laughs> in the wrong hands... It can be a deadly weapon. He kills man's best friend. So, a uh, man's best friend came out November nineteenth, nineteen ninety three, uh, from director writer John Lafiam, who right before this had directed Child's Play two, which I would argue was one of the better examples of the Child's Play franchise. Sincerely, I think it's a pretty good one. But Adam, this was your pick, and I had no idea what the hell it was. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, if most people who listened to it had any idea what the hell it was. So why don't you give people a brief uh, primer on Man's Best Friend? All right. Basic synopsis of Man's Best Friend is there's a fucking plucky reporter played by Ali Sheedy, and she wants the next big story. So she raids this lab that is known for uh, experimenting on animals and she's filming it and she finds this big ass Tibetan Mastiff dog named Max in a cage and it's really lovable and loves her. So she accidentally sort of frees him and he bonds with her and follows her and like stops her from getting mugged. And the whole time the scientist who was working on him is telling everybody like, he's going to become a psychopath and kill everyone. And people are the, of course you got the classic cops like, yes, yeah, so what I smoke, you know, there's all this dumb shit that happens. And you know, the dog doesn't get along with the boyfriend, doesn't get along with the kids, doesn't get along with cats. It nails a border collie for some reason. It's pure dreck, but it's so stupidly fun uh, and i don't like that people don't know what this movie is because i think that it is a pure gem of a so bad it's good movie those are uh, a lot of curious descriptors you used for man's best friend that we'll get into here no wait a minute you don't do that to me what i said is true and it's accurate and it's right and i fucking hang my hat on that that's those are all facts those were not opinions whatsoever that I'm I agree 99% I have no disagreements whatsoever <laughs> well Sam since you're a guest here and we thrust you, this Sam. upon you Sam what are your uh, sort of general thoughts on man's best friend this movie's tone is all over the fucking place it it just doesn't know what it wants to be and I think one of the film's biggest villains is the score like I just just to get right into it the score is insane okay so there's a scene where it's like taking place in this 90s suburb and it feels like it could be just a an average 90s family film and then all of a sudden the the dog swallows a cat hole which looks awesome 
<laughs> I love when it's the hand puppet, where it's clearly a hand puppet, but it's supposed to be the dog biting stuff. Oh, man. Uh, Thomas, I want to hear your thoughts before I just go into pure insanity over this movie. Because I think I'm going to die on this hell alone. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I, I kind of echo a lot of Sam's sentiments um, in as much as, like, I think it is re- very tonally confused. Because it'll go from being sort of like this uh, weirdly, like, surreal comedy, but then also have these sort of horror elements that we're talking about. Like, there will be horribly gory, like, mutilation sequences, which are well put together. Because Kevin Yeager, who did a lot of the special effects stuff for, like, Child's Play and some of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, did a lot of, like, the animatronics and the gore and some of that stuff. And it looks really good, but it just feels so weirdly confused when you have, like, bits of that. And then also, like, the sequences Sam's talking about, um, the cat being swallowed by this dog and also just the weird vibe of it like i agree with sam about the score but also just the general look and feel of the suburban setting in particular most of the movie takes place i just kept thinking the whole time like this feels like a film adaptation of a 90s tv commercial like there's a bit where there's this kid who's like the neighbor kid keeps coming over to ali sheedy's house and he's going into the kitchen just like oh hey what can i get out of the fridge i was waiting for him to say like purple stuff sunny d all right like it looks exactly uh-huh. like that same fucking commercial it's so just like weirdly glossy in a way that it feels like we're in a 90s commercial it's it's very fascinating in its own way but also i kind of get why it's very much forgotten one thing though i i gotta i gotta talk about lance henderson all right, right. i love lance henderson i've always been a lance henderson fan i love subdued lance henderson like bishop and near dark and things like that he's really good I am absolutely infatuated with grossly over-the-top Lance Henriksen, like you get in this movie. He is a fucking nutbag. And <laughs> it's so good, and, and yet they make dis- choices with him. Like, he's got a wedding ring. Who's he fucking married to? Like, wait, what? what is this guy all of a sudden? And my thing is, why are they giving this giant dog jaguar claws? Or urine that is acid. (laughs) Like, when he was talking about, like, you don't understand, this dog can be a benefit for society, it could represent the best of humanity, or it could, like, work against it. And then immediately it's just like, yeah, but, like, did you, like, program this dog to have, like, uh, uh, acid piss? Like, were you thinking about that? What are the the, uh, sort of real-world uses for that talent? What, who needs a Tibetan Mastiff or a giant-ass dog, which is sometimes a Rottweiler in the movie, let's be honest. Uh, it's never the same dog. Who, who, need, who needs a dog that pisses acid? What are the implications of that? Like, what is that for? Is it like a sort of like a nod to the Xenomorph in a certain way? I mean, like kind of? I don't, like, like, I maybe, don't know. Maybe. Maybe. That's the thing. This whole movie is kind of a maybe. Um, but then again, this dog just has a bunch of weird powers that aren't really explained. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, during the third act, he does the predator thing where he camouflages. Did he do that before in the movie? No. No. No, no. But, they, 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 but there's exposition from Lance Henriksen's that says that he has chameleon DNA in him. Yes. So that's they, your they explanation. Clearly, they, yeah, no, 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 no. They, they clearly were like, uh, constantly writing themselves into a corner like, uh, well, the dog can turn invisible. All right, fuck it. I mean, it, it's obvious uh, that they had 
a base idea of what they were going and it was clearly just sort of written on the fly or particularly my favorite bit during the climax in which the dog is cornered by the police cars and jumps over an early 90s photoshop effects which is masterful oh it's the best it's so cool oh, it's the best it's beautiful it's, it's, it should so be cool. it should be a, a painting that got put up at the beginning montage of this film which i don't know if anyone else remembers there was an opening montage with historical paintings yep. featuring dogs oh, i absolutely remember uh another thing i love dumb chin uh which thomas said is like a failed clone of Travolta or the other way around, which is very accurate. Yes. He looks like a failed um, clone of Travolta, the boyfriend character, Frederick Lane. Yeah. 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 I just call him just dumb chin. Cause they both have those really stupid chins, but even the point to where I get it, he comes home. He's like, you got a fucking dog. Like, no, the dog stays outside, whatever. So then they start like getting down to getting down and the dog gets in the house and he instantly is like, Oh, oh well, I'm done doing this. You, you, you betrayed me because a dog's in the house. Oh God. And I love, it's the classic where the dog's watching him through the keyhole and you see the eye sort of like zoom in. <laughs> this Norman Bates motherfucker of a dog. <laughs> Basically the yeah. dog's like, he's hurting her. It's, it's like in that science facility, did they also have a bunch of locked up serial killers as well? Because I don't think it was just animal DNA. They got spiced into this dog. No, yeah, this dog is the Sid 6.7 from Virtuosity of Dogs. Like, it's clear. <laughs> Deep <laughs> ass cut there. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I want to talk. I want. I want to talk about how the film begins because this is what I thought was actually like. Because here's the thing: for me personally, I don't. I'm not as favorable on this film as as Adam. Um, but no, there are a few scenes. <laughs> but there are a few scenes uh, in this film that I thought were pretty historical. There's a sequence involving close-up shots of animals in cages. And so it's initially like, oh, that's disgusting. This is gross. I don't like it. And then it gets more ridiculous the further it goes on. Like, they cut yeah. to a, a monkey that's lab- named Goner. Right, exposed. And, and, then, and then it goes to the orangutan. Like, I could swear this feels like it's a parody at, at certain points in the film. Like, it just, it feels like it unintentionally knew what it was doing in terms of, like, trying to get a certain reaction out of, out of people. Well, I th- that's the thing. I think there are points where it feels like it's trying to be like a horror comedy. I think that's the aim that it's going for. Yeah. But I just would argue like that the horror and comedy tip depending on like scene to scene. And then sometimes they go for a full on joke and it's just like, oh, this is not funny at all. Like the scene Adam kind of mentioned earlier in which uh, Max, the, the, the dog, yeah, has an affection for this border collie, which if you don't know is the lassie breed of dog. And there's a whole sequence yeah. involving him cornering this dog and having sex with it, which has a lot of awful implications. And I think that's, but that's the joke for the movie, I guess, is what they're going for. And it's really bad. It's terrible. It's awful. It's just so unnecessary. And it's just like, you don't need this in the film at all. And also the fact that you hear the dog kind of like basically at the end, it's, so I, s- I, but for me personally, like I said, the movie's tone is all over the place to where it was giving me whiplash, and then that scene happens, and I'm like, okay, film, this is kind of like, unfortunately, that scene was the kind of death nail for you. Like, everything else after that was, was still kind of fun, but it's like, if that scene wasn't in there, I think this film would be, you know, yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, it has some I questionable think, moments, but... See, I don't know. The thing is, I think that, obviously, what happens in the scene is is what happens. But even as far as the final noise... Now, I don't know, in all honesty, because the movie is so totally all over the place, if that was the Border Collie howling or that was Max's O noise. 
either way the framing of it is just really weird and it's going for a joke of just like oh man they're having sex it's just like but you weirdly frame it like it's supposed to be a rape it's so odd and then it's also weird because yeah. that ends up being the catalyst for later on the happy ending that's why it's in the movie where max apparently has puppies with this dog he's just like oh that's as puppy love plays over it again oh and during that scene dur- yeah during the whole scene they play paul Anka's poppy love which is also really upsetting <laughs> it's just i didn't even find it like oh wow this is really ridiculous just like this is not needed at all and upsetting <laughs> i don't get why we have this here yeah I was, I, was, I was bummed out because that scene happened you ever had someone on set that just said maybe tone it down a little maybe don't do this <laughs> I, I don't think so i think it, in fact it was probably quite the opposite it was probably oh, that's true. Punch it up, punch it up, punch it up. Make it crazier, make it more crass, because that's what put butts in the seats, you know. Uh, maybe not so much with this movie, but still, yeah. No, it, it, look, I'm a fan of this movie because it's so bad, because it's so totally all over the place, because it has an over the top Lance Henriksen, and the dog is played by clearly like five to six different dogs at different ages. But it's not good. Like, I know this movie isn't good. I'm not crazy. Uh, I mean, well, that's arguable. But I'm not crazy. Like, I know I know about this movie. I know it's a terrible film. But it's got a certain level of charm to it to me in its earnest attempt to just make something. They don't know what they're making, but they're really going for it to make something. It doesn't feel lazy to me. No, and I think a lot of that comes from, for me, where I find sort of, like, the interest kind of, like, so bad it's good qualities is really with the fact that I think all of the cast members are very committed to the movie they think they're in. It's just a trouble if they all think they're in very different movies. Because I agree with you, Lance Henriksen is very much, like, an over-the-top, almost kind of, like, speaking to his career, Kyle Reese kind of character, where it's just like, you understand, this dog's gonna maul all of you apart, like, he's treating it super seriously. And then you got, like, Ali Sheedy, who's just like, I'm here to protect these dogs, and I'm an investigative reporter, and I love my boy Max. And then, like, I, you mentioned the other, like, the two detective characters, one of which is played by Robert Casanzo who you, most of you would probably know as uh, Arnold's jackhammer buddy from Total Recall. Hell yeah. Um, he's a very recognizable kind of character actor. Um, he's just like, hey, yeah. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. I'm a detective here. Like he's on a third-rate NYPD ripoff of this era. <laughs> yeah, don't tell us how to do our job. You know, one of those guys. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Very much. And right. then his young, health-conscious partner. Listen, lady, do you want to stay here and be eaten by this mutant dog, or do you want to help out the police? That's not quite a good impression, but you get the point. No, it's like he was in the room, Sam. <laughs> I thought for a second. Oh, oh, wow. oh, thank you. His partner takes the cigarette out of his mouth and shows a carrot in his mouth. How stupid. For- what do you think it'll look like in five years? Oh, I don't know. I'll be dead by then. Hey, sit on it. Hey, oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> sit and spin, all right? Hey. <laughs> I um I, I think I might be the only one who thinks this way, but I thought Ali Sheedy did a solid enough job in the film. I thought she she worked. Yeah, I thought she yeah. worked in the capacity she, you know she was there for. But her performance does come across that she's very sympathetic to the dog. I, I think she's fine. I think that sort of like ties into my problem because she is kind of trying a bit, and so is Lance Henriksen, who does an over the top performance, which I don't mind in a film like this. The film wants to have both ways with the dog. It's like it wants you to root for the dog, but it also just wants to accept this this dog's a monster. And like I was thinking of films that do things like this, where it just takes a basic animal and turns into a flat monster, like Anaconda, like Placid, and Beethoven. The exact dog movie I was thinking about with the Saint Bernard, right on Sam. Exactly. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is technically a creature feature if you think about it. Yeah, Charles Grodin. But, uh, right? Charles Grodin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The film was trying to have it both ways with trying to have the dog be like, oh, look at this cute dog. I mean, it does some bad things, but look at the dog. I, I kind of felt a little betrayed in that sense for a dog film. I, I kind of agree with that same. It feels definitely like the movie just sort of had these notes from like a studio about like, hey, you know, we like that you're making the killer dog movie, but ki- kids like the dogs. Like, do we want to really make it that unsympathetic to a yeah. certain degree? It's like, it eats a cat. <laughs> and this film also yeah. has another uh, trope I'm not a, I don't like at all because it's like, the parrot in this film is supposed, is supposed to be annoying. But, I, you know, I thought there was some charm with what the parrot is doing. It's kind of an asshole, which, you know, if you, if you have a parrot, you definitely know parrots can't be assholes. And, you know, you understand that parrots are the way they are. I just don't like it where it's like, hey, this animal's fucking annoying. Why don't we kill it? Hey, look at this small dog that's yapping all the time. Why don't we kill it? it it's that same energy, and I, I don't like it. I don't like that that trope where it's just like this small animal is being very annoying and it's owned by a very annoying person there's some sort of link between the owner and and the pet right in terms of like how it behaves but it's not like it's not the pet's fault that it just has to die in like a very brutal manner you know what i mean it feels a bit more mean-spirited yeah, than I, I think it needs to be i agree with that it's a shock value tactic that's used uh quite a bit it doesn't offend me but i've never really cared for it i think it's just a quick way to sort of get people to be like oh no they're hurting the small animal and to me it's cheap yeah i agree right even though we're in the middle of this movie where a <laughs> a small <laughs> quote-unquote an- small animal is like murdering people and all this other stuff i mean i also want, i do want to give credit genuinely to like the effects work i think it does actually pretty work especially when max like has to bomb through doors i think that's the stuff where the effects look really good but i think it creates the most kind of inherently entertaining and kind of a so bad it's fun way like the bit where the boyfriend's in the closet and he hears max just like max are you there and then the dog fucking bursts through the door (laughs) it just fucking bursts through (laughs) and there's like a good really good (laughs) animatronic version of max that just like comes in starts like bawling that dude i think like the the effects work works pretty well when it's especially like the animatronic stuff or the dog puppet hands. Oh, those are my favorite. I love those. That's my when favorite. It, when it flushed the, the the dog food in the toilet, I thought that was pretty great. That's amazing. And when it's the, the dog head as a hand puppet and it's like biting the mailman's leg, it, it's so stupid. But it looks so fucking funny. It looks like like only slightly higher budgeted versions like Triumph the Insult comic dog on Conan. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Which is so 100%. crazy. Like on Conan, whenever they have yeah. like dog paws, like do something, it's just like clearly a rod yep. with a dog paw at the end of it. <laughs> um, I think we're kind of running on fumes here with this one. So let's go ahead and uh, do our final thoughts here. Adam, your final thoughts on Man's Best Friend as perhaps the only one true fan of it. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, like I said, I know it's a bad movie. I find it entertaining, but I do think this could have generally been a good B sort of horror movie if either everyone was on Lance Henriksen's level or everyone was on Ali Sheedy's level. Um, I think that's where the tonal shifts really happen is, like you said, Thomas, everybody's committed, but they all just think they're in different movies. I think if everybody is on one of those two sort of wavelengths, like completely over the top or playing it safe and subdued, I think this movie could really be a lot more fun than it is. It is a tonal nightmare. Uh, There is a lot of sort of slapsticky 
almost comedy in it and you know small town suburbia we're all fucking friends here in this town and we all protect each other just bullshit but i do still think it's kind of a fun weird little bizarre movie that nobody knows of and maybe that's why i'm sort of beholden to it because anytime i mention it people are like what the fuck are you talking about to me it's special in that way i feel like i'm the only person who's ever seen this movie and uh for that i i I can't help but kind of love it well that's really strong I don't know that I love it, but I, I, I do think it's it's kind of fun. Well, Man's Best Friend Hive, you heard Adam come out. Admit that you like Man's Best Friend and make Adam part of a community to some degree. The few fans of you that are out there, please, he needs it. All one of you, which is the director. He's probably not even a fan of this, to be honest. Probably not. Adam's like, I am Dog Legion, for we are many best friends. Very true, very true. But uh, Sam, your final thoughts on uh, Man's Best Friend? There's actually a, f- a few things I want to go over, because, yeah, I do agree that it's like uh, there's a certain point where it's just like, yeah, there's there's not much else to say about it, but there's a, there's a few small things just to quickly go over it. Uh, the Junkyard owner is, is incredibly evil, like ridiculous, and only shows up for like one or two scenes. And then um, on top of that, the dog gets a big Freddy Krueger scar, which I thought was kind of dope, except for the fact that it had to wear like a contact lens for like a, you know, a couple minutes. I wasn't a big fan of that. Um, and then uh, Lance Henriksen having maybe one of the goofiest death yells ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the way he goes out is kind of over the, over the top in a way I really enjoyed. Um, that's, that, that's the thing that's unfortunate is that some of the things I listed just now, uh, should make this sound like a really fun film for me, but just a couple of really bad decisions just, and not just bad decisions, but incredibly bad decisions that I thought were personally in poor taste kind of made the film feel less fun to sit through. And if it just made like a, a quick edit, maybe just removed a few scenes, I think it would have been fine. But it's like, it just goes to show that you could still have a fun B movie, but if you just have, like, if you're trying to push like the edge factor, I don't think you're gonna make a really memorable film. I just don't because you're just gonna be that that '90s horror film that just tried to push the envelope because everyone else was. So that's where I stand on Men's Best Friend, and I, I thought the doc should have been a Terminator at the end. Real quick, Tom, before you get into yours, the original posters for this movie had like. Uh obviously Lance Henderson holding a laser sighted weapon uh, pointing it. And the background was the dog and it had pieces of its face missing. And it was a Terminator dog. Like it was a, it was a cyborg underneath its skin. That's pretty cool. Why didn't we have good cyboy? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Aww. Aww. <laughs> As for the, uh, the movie itself, I just am like kind of with Sam on it where I get why this is kind of forgotten. I, I think it has like a few things that are kind of like, this is weird in a way that I don't think the movie should have probably went for it. Like, as we mentioned, the scene with the Lassie dog. But um, at the same time, I don't think it's like one that I'm going to really remember that much at all in terms of the show. It's not like incredibly forgettable, like a Chun-Li or anything, the most forgettable movie I've ever done. <laughs> For the show, but it still at least kind of feels like this. It has like a few interesting moments, I guess, here and there. It's kind of an interesting time capsule in that way. I could see somebody like an Adam watching this on cable at some point and kind of growing a weird either fear or fascination with it to some degree uh, based on that. But overall, yeah, it's just kind of like one that'll, uh, I, I get why it doesn't have a lasting legacy to any degree, even as like a cult movie, quote unquote, it doesn't really earn that necessarily because of how jumbled it is and how even kind of limited it is as a movie like this movie is about 
80 minutes without credits, and I think a lot of it is stuff like Sam mentioned. The opening credits are about five minutes longer, just like, here are classic portraits of dogs and shit from the past, because we really need to pad out this running time. <laughs> There's a lot of moments I feel like we're really just padding out this running time. <laughs> but... That's the end of our discussion there for Man's Best Friend, but before we get into our good feature, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. My name is Mark McCray, and I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. I'm Dan Klink, co-host of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives features programming trends from the 1966 television season all the way through the last hurrah of the early digital age of the 1990s. On the show, if it's animated, we talk about it. Order your signed copy today at tbsool.com. And listen to the podcast at esonetwork.com and all podcast platforms. All right, and now uh, let's get into our good feature, The Adventures of Tintin. Come on, Snowy! He has solved the world's greatest mysteries. Well done, my boy. But he's about to discover his biggest adventure yet. The location of the greatest treasures in history. Excellent. This Christmas, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson come together for the first time to bring you what critics are calling the perfect cross between Pirates of the Caribbean and Indiana Jones. Give me those Look at them fast asleep. Typical land lovers. The Adventures of Tintin in 3D. Rated PG. December 21st. So The Adventures of Tintin came out on December 21st, 2011. Uh, from director Steven Spielberg. Might have heard of him, maybe. Who knows? Oh, AI. That's right. Right, exactly. Uh, favorite of the show, AI, as we've talked about previously. Wait, wait. Steven Spielberg from Duel? Yes. Did this movie? <laughs> right. And 1941. Oh, wow. I don't know if you knew that. Us 1941 heads here. Whoa. That guy's gone places, I guess. I know, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a Highlander. <laughs> for sure. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, this is uh, his film based on the works of Hergé, uh, who obviously made these Tintin books that are extremely popular, particularly in Belgium, his native country. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask before we even get into this, are any of us like fans of the comics or the character at all before this movie came out? Yeah, I knew of it, but I didn't really know anything about it. But I've seen like the original art and the character and stuff before. I mildly know it, but like, but I, I just don't have much of a clue about it. But I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's fun. I just... Yeah, uh, as you can tell from us here, we're uncultured swine Americans. Any of our international viewers are just like, but Tintin! ho ho. Uh, no, uh, we, we we're not as familiar, obviously, with the source material. I remember when this movie was coming out, I had, like, a sense memory of, like, where have I seen this character before? And I realized, I believe I did watch, as a very young kid, the HBO animated series, which was um, kind of, like, limited animation, kind of had, like, these designs, just, like, kind of barely animated, basically. I watched a few clips again right before we recorded the show. And so, like, there hasn't been that many interesting adaptations. There's been, like, either those animated ones or the weird, like, live-action movies from, like, the 70s, which you've seen any clips of, where they have, like, really weird makeup to make them look like the designs of, like, the bulbous noses and stuff. It's really weird. Um, and Steven Spielberg had been wanting to do an adaptation in some form, whether live-action or animated, for decades, ever since he had a review in 1981 when he did Raiders of the Lost Ark from uh, an international magazine compared it strictly to Tintin. He was like, what the hell is this? And then found this and ended up getting the rights from Hergé's, uh, actually, widow right after he died. He ended up getting the rights in, like, the mid-80s. So he was going back and forth about making it to some degree. And then he decided on doing it in motion capture with the help of Peter Jackson in 2011 uh, with this movie, which was called The Secret of the Unicorn, internationally, uh, as sort of a subtitle. 
And um, I pick this as a good pick. One, because Tintin obviously has his uh, buddy Snowy, who's this little cute dog that follows around uh, Tintin on his adventures and such. He's a, a little wire fox terrier. You didn't see me, but I, I pump my fist in the air. <laughs> Fuck yeah, Snowy. Snowy Stan right here. Hell yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mainly picked this just because I've wanted to kind of talk about this movie for a while since I kind of feel it's the last really great Spielberg blockbuster movie because this movie came out in 2011. In fact, like only a few days before War Horse, which was, I would argue, one of his worst movies, but it's like indicative of where he was kind of at this point in his career. And there was like just very oscar baity very weighty subjects that he's trying to cover, sort of like about man and their sort of difficulties with either nature or themselves, all this other kind of stuff. And uh, this was sort of something that came out of the blue, and I think really exemplifies everything. Like, if you love an Indiana Jones movie, I think this does so much of the Indiana Jones stuff better than around the same time. He was coming off of Crystal Skull, which I would argue kind of displays how he was a lot less uh, capable of doing some of his big blockbuster stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think this movie's incredibly great and very underrated in the States, in particular. Uh, but I want to hear from, uh, everyone else here. Uh, first, how about Adam? What are your general thoughts on, uh, The Adventures of Tintin? Uh, you know, I, I think The Adventures of Tintin is, uh, basically a masterpiece. I, I, I'm hard-pressed to really find anything wrong with it, anything bad to say about it. It's an animated movie for you know, young adults to adults. Like, I, my kid has no interest in this movie. I've tried to show her a couple times. She just doesn't really care. But this is a movie for people like us who grew up loving Indiana Jones and adventure movies. You know, even like the first Mummy, that sense of just real adventure and high stakes. And, you know, you get on a fucking boat and you meet the salty captain and then that takes you to the next sort of leg of the adventure and the next step and the next step. And it still looks fucking amazing. Like, the animation just holds up so incredibly well. And it's got, not necessarily the best, but one of my favorite all-around uh, vocal performance cast in, in any of these type of movies. I, I think everyone in it is fucking perfect. I, I think this movie is an absolute gem that, unfortunately, you know, didn't really get what they expected on the return because... It, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't we supposed to get a sequel that was flipped, where it'd be Peter Jackson directing the sequel and Steven Spielberg producing? Right. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it did very well overseas, and they are clamoring for it, but here it did, no one gave a shit, because like we mentioned, no one knows what fucking Tintin is over here. But I mean, it's so good, and it's so fun, and it's, like I said, it's got that sense of sort of childhood wonderment and adventure, and like... You know, if I was a fucking 10-year-old boy and saw this movie, I would want to be Tintin. You know, you'd want to be him. You'd want to go on these crazy adventures and have your trusty canine with you and, and meet this, you know, sea captain who ultimately becomes like your best friend and ally. And these two bumbling detectives who are always around. I mean, I, I just, I, I, this movie kind of hits it on all fronts. Sam, I'm very curious, because I'm not sure of your thoughts on Tintin. I'm not sure if you were a fan of it when it came out or not, but uh, what are your thoughts, especially now, on uh, The Adventures of Tintin? Well, obviously, it's no man's best friend, um, right. so that's yes. where we start with this. Okay. Uh, no, and honestly, this movie's great. Um, this movie not having a bigger success really baffles me, especially to this day. It's a, it's spectacle, but it's earned spectacle. It's not shallow with what it tries to do with its set pieces or its storytelling. 
I could describe a couple like scenes in this film. Like there's there's one I'm gonna describe real quick and tell me if I sound like a crazy person. Um a dog floats in the air inside a plane as it sips up a large bubble of whiskey, as Haddock races to drink it up first. I sound like a madman when I say this, but it is one of the most colorful and delightful scenes in the film. This performance capture thing, like obviously motion capture has become a staple in terms of you have people like an Andy Serkis who's in the movie play motion capture characters in mostly live action movies. But I think right before this, you had sort of the... Uh, Robert Zemeckis-style motion capture movies, which I've rewatched recently because I've been going through the Zemeckis movies, and that's been rough. But I think it was sort of important, especially before going back to this movie, because you see those movies and how much it just feels like Robert Zemeckis is playing with toys and not caring as much about the story, versus Spielberg clearly has an investment just like, oh, these toys are great, I can tell this fun story with these cool toys that I'm using. And especially if you watch any of the bonus features, I would recommend it, where it's just like him on the sort of wireframe set where it's like Andy Serkis or Jamie Bell who plays Tintin or some of the other actors in their mocap suits with wireframe like versions of Snowy or like if they're holding a bottle, like these wireframe versions of it. But he has so much investment in like using his sort of like PlayStation controller of a camera that he uses with a monitor to like really capture whatever shots he can in the style. And there are just some of these camera moves in this movie where it's like, he knows, like, oh, I could never, ever, ever, ever do this in live action. But let's have fun with that. That we can make the camera move around in such insane fashions. Like, there's a whole sequence where Tintin and Haddock are on the water and a plane flies over. And the camera does, like, a weird, like, 90-degree uh, angle shot that's just like, he could never fucking do that in live action. But he knows it and he's really taking advantage of this unique opportunity. And it's such a bummer that, like, I think we got tired of those mocap movies because of, like, Polar Express or Beowulf or A Christmas Carol. And that caused this movie to not do nearly as well over here, I would argue, despite the fact that Spielberg kind of perfected the technology with this particular idea. It's such a fun movie. It feels like such a natural next step for, like you said, technology for films. It feels like what I, I should be seeing more films like this in theaters right now than Men in Black 23. Like, I was never asking for a sequel to this film, even though I would have loved it. I just want more films to, like, you know, do more stuff like this because, um... You can, you can definitely tell that Spielberg has some influence from, from video games and stuff. And yeah, I'm going to plug in Boom Blocks from the Wii because obviously that was a huge inspiration for this film. Um, but no, like you, you can tell Spielberg has had an influence from you know video games and stuff. And they, you can definitely see that in something like Ready Player One. But I think the difference here is that he understands just like in video games and why the narratives in video games are a lot more complex is because you're not limited by your scope in, in that uh, medium. And you can do the same thing with motion capture. And there's so many, and there's like several set pieces where, like you said, he he just was able to do it because he had this vision of what he wanted to do, and he went out and did it in the most lovingly way. It wasn't just I feel like it wasn't just a, a tribute to like Indiana Jones. It just felt like a, a, a naturally great blockbuster. Absolutely agree with you, and I agree with the sentiment too that I'd like to see maybe more films on this ilk. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously we know the. The idea of motion capture animation, especially from Zemeckis and things, it's been done, you know, quite a few times. Uh, I would say it's kind of inarguable that none have been done as well as this, unless you count like fucking like Avatar or something like that. But we all know how I feel about fucking Avatar. I would love to see more movies like this that are geared not only towards children, but for parents to enjoy that have a more sort of mature context to them. It's not just, you know shrek that well once in a while cut a dirty joke i don't know that there's 
really many movies like this since that exist to where I can watch this and, and enjoy not, not only nostalgia level, because it reminds me of movies of old, but there's it's there's good sort of action beats in it. There's really complex and really well done storytelling, both visually and just in the script alone. But it's visually stimulating and exciting. It is kind of a bummer that when you get the sequel, but you know we do have this one, and I, and I agree. I think it's really sad that it's not sort of as appreciated as it should be. I mean, there are definitely diehard fans of it. There are people that really love this movie, but there are a lot of people who have no fucking clue what it is and don't really care. And to the point to where when I've even talked about the Adventures of Tintin, they think you mean Rin Tintin. The dog. <laughs> Much older reference than even the original Tintin, Tintin fucking books. I, I swear to God, I, I've heard <laughs> it. And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> like, so, but yeah, I, I just, again, I, I don't know that I could sing praises for this movie enough. Um, but I think what you're you're talking about, I think, speaks to the fact that, like, with the other motion capture movies, all those stories are so thin, like Polar Express, where it's based on such a short, small book and they have, like, to pad out basically about an hour, 40 minutes of time. They're like, oh, Jesus Christ, how did we do that? As opposed to a lot of credit to, we mentioned Spielberg, but also the credited writers on this movie are astonishing. Where it's Stephen Moffat, who ran Doctor Who for a mm. while, and I would argue ran, had some a lot of fun episodes, particularly with Matt Smith's era. And then also uh, Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish especially Joe Cornish being the guy who made Attack of the Block and also has worked with Edgar Wright and a lot of things. I think they have so many great, clever, like, gags that are either inserted either for, like, the visual stuff for Spielberg to work off of or just, like, really great examples of, like you mentioned, kind of, like, this mystery storytelling they're doing with, like, all the clues that are being gathered up by Tintin but also all, like, the great jokes that are going back and forth. Even with characters as, like, superfluous as Thompson and Thompson, the two detectives who are played wonderfully uh -huh. by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, speaking to Edgar Wright, um, they have, like, so many great back and forth bits and pieces and stuff like when they're looking at the newspaper and it's just like oh my god they're having a sale on bowler hats tops i can't believe it there's also a sale on canes <laughs> like it's just really clever <laughs> fun back and forth that's going on at the same time you're being dazzled by the visuals that are going on here there are our sequences happening in the background too like with with thompson thompson there was a scene where someone bumped into an old lady carrying a cage of canaries fluttering around it was super neat because it's the fact that it's you know like the 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 canaries were were flying around the, the 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 man's head as he was like you know concussed for like a quick second and then that scene continues in the background and that happens quite a few times in this film where there's actually kind of a small story happening with some of these scenes right or even just and also at the same time there's the visual stuff like i love how that scene transitions from the previous scene where it's like after this big intense sequence where tintin and uh, Haddock and Snowy get off of this the villain's boat. Um, they're on the life raft and they're rowing away. And it transitions to where they're suddenly in a puddle and they get stepped on by Thompson Thompson basically as a transition. I'm like, that's a masterful transition that you couldn't do yeah, in live so, action at all. It's so, <laughs> so good. It looks like a James Bond opening. Right. It's so fucking cool. Uh, but no, to speak to your point earlier about like Polar Express and things like that where they give it so much padding. But then you get other ones that have huge source material, like Beowulf. And you get it, and it's just really bland and boring. That's a story that is able to be stretched in a way because you can show more character interaction and things like that. That still doesn't take away from the story itself. Where this, it's based on a fucking Belgian comic, like newspaper comic. And it's fucking excellent. 
Like, this is proper storytelling padding, if you want to call it that, if it's even based on an original Tintin story, which I'm not 100% sure on that. It might be. Uh, it's apparently based on, like, a couple different stories, because, like, he would actually, Hershey would do these, like, two-part graphic novels, basically. And this is based on, like, a couple of those that are put together in this one movie. Well, there you go, and it's done seamlessly. The story never feels like, eh, I could have maybe done without this part, or this feels padded. It feels like it's all necessary to tell the little story that they're trying to tell in this. And by little, I mean a fucking epic adventure story. It's fascinating on so many levels, visually storytelling and everything, but that they were able to sort of take this character that nobody in the States really knows. Like you might've seen the, the original artwork. Everyone knows the character. Everyone's seen the character. It's like Dennis the Menace mixed with Archie mixed with, you know, propaganda artwork. It's really a cool style, but to take all that and make an incredibly cohesive story and a thrilling and entertaining story is a feat upon itself. Honestly. No, yeah, what I like about it is the fact that it, it feels so much like it's a story and just like a style of movie that also couldn't really be told either in live action, because it would look really weird and you would lose some of the cartoonishness, but also straight animation, I think it would be a lot more kind of crowded, especially when you get to like the big elaborate sort of set pieces that happen. It can only really be done in this weird sort of art form with the motion capture, and I think it's a big credit to not just Spielberg's style, but I will also agree, Adam, I think this cast is so phenomenal. Like, we haven't talked much about uh, Jamie Bell or Andy Serkis as our two lead characters, and they're so phenomenal, especially Andy Serkis. Like, this was the movie for me where before this, it's just like, oh, he's the guy who does, like, motion capture, like Gollum, or um, right before this, he had done Caesar in the first Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And it's like, oh, he does, like, really good motion capture stuff. But this was the movie that re made me realize, like, oh, wait, Andy Serkis is just a really good character actor regardless of the motion capture. And he's so fun, has so many great bits of comedic timing, and even, like, convincingly goes through an interesting arc in the movie where they have fun with the fact that he's an alcoholic, which is interesting for a movie that has the Nickelodeon logo in front of it. <laughs> you don't see that too often. <laughs> They're able to, like, give this character an interesting arc about, like, his alcoholism while also having some fun with it. Like, the scene when Sam kind of referenced where he's drinking alcohol in zero-G, and then it's like, oh no, we need to refuel the plane, it's about to go down, and then he proceeds to burp into the engine and cause it to sputter off into land. That's amazing! And once again, you could never really do it that convincingly, either in straight-up animation or in live-action. It's just so uniquely perfect for this particular style you would have to suspend your disbelief quite a bit in a live action film and i think uh in indiana jones they do that but i think like you said because it's motion capture here and i'm just gonna say it like i this is my favorite unofficial indiana jones film mainly because it's willing to do a lot more silly stuff with the set pieces like where they're trying to escape the ship Attentive's trying to knock out someone with the, the, the bottle, and then Haddock just grabs the bottle behind him, and then he just messes up because Haddock's a drunk. <laughs> like, he's, he's an alcoholic. He's portrayed in a very charming way that I really adore, and he, this is an excellent example of a character that you really know through his actions rather than what he says. Because, yeah, he, he delves into some exposition behind his backstory and stuff, but then you go into the flashbacks, and they show what happens during those events as he's explaining what transpired with his... Um, uh, with his, uh, uh, I think, I can't remember, it was his ancestor? Yeah, it's like um, his great-grandfather, I think. Great-grandfather. Th there's like a boat that's hanging off the top of another boat, and it's like doing the, the thing you see in, um, in theme parks where the boat is like motioning up and down, but it's on top of another boat. This is incredibly creative. I never would have seen anything like this in any current Pirates of the Caribbean movie. 
Yeah, where, like, the masts kind of, like, uh, meld into each other, and they, like, one boat is, like, um, almost uh, this albatross that's hanging on the other mast. It's so creative. I think it's because you mentioned, like, his history with video games in terms of Spielberg, but also you see a lot of his history with animation, because after all, around, like, in the 90s, he was producing a lot of, like, the big animated productions, like Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and stuff, and even also the theme park stuff, because, like, he was a big person with, like, Universal, like, he was a big spearhead behind, obviously, Back to the Future, the ride, because he produced the movie movies like it has so many like spielberg's sort of like bigger fascinations with like how can i kind of meld all these different storytelling techniques i use in other mediums into this one movie with a creative sort of uh style that we can utilize and i think he does such a great job of doing that without ever losing the story because in those robert zemeckis movies not to keep bringing them up but they do similar things where it's like oh look here's we're in the middle of a christmas carol and scrooge and the ghost christmas present are gonna like be in their house that like hovers over other houses like whoa it's a big elaborate sequence who cares i don't give a shit <laughs> but it's it's a it's a shitty it's a shitty theme park ride which i hate in those in those those robbers that make those films where it's just like whoa can you feel the inertia as you follow jim carrey flying around this town like no no i don't i hate it actually stop <laughs> um <laughs> but that's the exact opposite here where it feels like a movie it doesn't feel like a big check out this ride at Universal Studios. It's like no, this is this is an actual film that lovingly put all these um, set pieces together. And um, I want to talk about Snowy. Snowy is generally a character in this film, which I adore because obviously you can get away with some of the things Snowy does in this film compared to like it was live action. Like we we're saying, like that dog would be in so much peril, it'd be like upsetting. But um, because of the fact that they would do so many creative things with Snowy in this, in this film, and the fact that Snowy gets a really creative chase sequence where Snowy's climbing on top of the cows and trying to reach Tintin. And that happens several times in the films where it's just you're just following Snowy doing what Snowy does best, which is rescue Tintin. Right, and even like there are points where he is crucial to the story. Like he gives Haddock the medical alcohol in the hospital that's necessary for him to go into his big elaborate flashback. Uh, montage, which I love that bit too. I've just had it going crazy as he like continues to spiral out, and you get like flashes between him and the hospital and Caddick, um ancestor and all this other stuff. And I do agree that Snowy. I think that's the main reason I picked this movie was because Snowy does feel like a genuine character and not just like oh he's a cute dog to like follow around. Like Snowy it matters to the story and feels like such a great character, which especially given like he's the one sort of main character that's not motion captured at all given they didn't really have much, like, only some vague reference material and, like, there were wire dogs on the set and shit. He's mostly animated, and I think he works incredibly well for the story while feeling enough like he's a dog in this universe where he feels kind of grounded in reality like the humans do. And he has such a great chemistry with Tintin um, where they just go back, where they feel like they've been, like, boy and his dog for ages, and it feels like so much like Tintin knows and respects Snowy as an actual character, not just, he's a cute little puppy. To go back to, to Haddock, the uh, loose thing, by the way, there's a favorite line. What is this peculiar liquid? There's no bouquet. It's completely transparent. Why, it's water. And then he says, what will they think of next? That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> no, it's such a great line. Yeah, I love that. Or um, him on the boat when Tintin's trying to get him to remember something. He's just like, I don't remember anything about anything. <laughs> like, he can't even muster <laughs> any kind of memory whatsoever. And I mean, also shout out to Jamie Bell as Tintin, where, like, on paper, that's a bland character, because in theory, it's just like, oh, Tintin is just, like, so resourceful, and he's on the case all the time. 
But Tintin feels like such a great character to kind of anchor a lot of your big adventure stuff on when, like, he utilizes, you know, stuff like guns. I love the fact that Tintin uses guns, but he never kills anybody. But he either uses the gun to intimidate or is, like, a tool. He uses it to, like, get the plane to come down non-fatally or he shoots a spotlight at one point at some people that are chasing after him. I like the fact that Tintin is, like, a genuinely resourceful hero as well. And also, he's, like, badass, but he never treats himself as, like, I'm a motherfucking badass. He's just, like, I'm a boy adventurer off to find my story. <laughs> like, he's a fucking dork. But he's so cool. He doesn't even know it. And he fucks up too. Like he taught. I remember the the one scene where he tosses the rope and he did the rope just lands on his head. I'm like, oh, that's really neat. That's that's kind of the Indiana Jones aspect where, where Indy is also slightly incompetent in certain ways. And but Tintin is not incompetent. He's just not good at certain things. Like he just he kind of fucks up, and that's such a big deal for what makes him likable too. And you don't. And it's a few times, but. Whenever they do show, showcase some the flaws with, with Tintin, I really appreciate it because it really fleshes him out. It also still makes him feel like a kid. Those flaws deeply root him as a you know a teenage boy to where he, he doesn't have it all figured out yet. And I think uh, it's a very important for the character to have those flaws because if he didn't, like Thomas already said, he'd be such a bland, boring character. But the fact that he fucks up and he makes stupid mistakes... And he's very sort of impulsive when it comes to, you know, certain things. And he doesn't necessarily sort of succeed all the time in what he does. Makes him a more interesting character. And in turn, that's what sort of makes Snowy an interesting character, too, because Snowy is so important to Tintin. Like, there's a genuine sort of love between those two characters. And it's it it feels, like I said, it feels genuine. It feels real that, you know... Without Snowy, Tintin wouldn't be who he is, and vice versa. Yeah, you can tell that even with um, with Tintin, he also like cares about a Haddock, despite the fact that Haddock keeps putting him in these awkward situations. He still like really cares about even especially his alcoholism. Like there's the whole point where Haddock's trying to drink in the middle of telling the story, and he's just like, "Oh, he picks up the bottle," and then Tintin's like, and then he said, "Oh, I should put that down. It doesn't seem like a great time to be drinking at this moment." Or even when like a Haddock ends up getting hit on the head after he purposely puts down the bottle he gets hit on the head with his own alcohol bottle and says like oh you know what they got the scroll and there was a bottle of course there's always a bottle i can smell it on you like really great genuine moments that despite the fact that oh it's a silly kind of cartoon movie these characters feel real despite even the fact that they don't look quite human and that even extends to somebody like daniel craig as the villain who we haven't mentioned that much who's kind of like a cliche mustache twirling villain but he has a lot of intimidation, and he also feels like he's like an actual living person with ethics, like the way he uses cane, and like even how he just prances around his particular like walk, and the way that he like really comes down to intimidate Tintin, or how he tries to like use his insults to like bring down Haddock. At the same time, he feels like a real, genuine, intimidating presence. Plus, you know, Daniel Craig. That's one thing a lot of people don't really maybe give him enough credit for he he's a really good sort of voice actor he's able to sort of change the inflection of his voice really well like i wasn't fully aware that it was him or wasn't told that was him i wouldn't know it was daniel craig i just i would just think it's a really good voice performance uh, i strangely feel the same way about andy circus where like despite the fact that i should be able to know it was andy circus playing haddock i'd never got a strong enough clue to figure out, oh, it's just Andy Serkis playing Haddock. It's like, the performances are very strong in terms of like how diverse and different they are compared to like how these actors usually do their roles. No, or even with like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost as the Thompson, like the twin detectives, I would never really be able to know. 
and it still feels like they have that same comedic energy despite that. It really does feel like it's this unique example of really disappearing into a character for all these people and for Spielberg and all these other things. It feels like it, it's just this weird moment where it's like I kind of get why a sequel didn't happen because it feels like everybody was at the right place at the right time for Tintin. And I don't know if you could ever recapture that even in a sequel because it just feels like it's this weird, unique beast on its own. And it teases a sequel, but it kind of feels like it's perfect the way that it ends. And it's like, oh, they just go off and have more fun adventures I'd love to see. But at the same time, I don't know if any of those adventures could quite equal this, especially just shots like... We've, we've talked about a few of like the big extravagant bits, but my favorite, and I think one of Spielberg's like masterworks as a set piece for action movies, is the whole thing that starts from when they're at the dam and uh, Haddock accidentally shoots the bazooka the wrong way, and they're going down the dam into the town, and it feels almost like one fluid shot. It's one of many examples of, like, you're watching a scene, it's like, halfway through you realize, oh, this is one total shot, and I didn't even recognize it, because you don't really subconsciously think of it. But everything that goes from that dam all the way down to, like, when Tintin catches the Falcon, like, when they're all chasing the Falcon... It's one of, I think, the best action set pieces I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, everything that started that kicks off in Bagar, I think, is what it's called. Right. Um, uh, like, is is incredible, and it's it's shocking to me how much I was just kind of like like losing it because I was looking at that sequence and realizing like there's no way this just could have like happened. Like, it's not because it's not just one character in this action sequence; it's multiple characters trying to like chase after like. A, a, like a couple important pl um, plot devices, but they're but it's done in such a unique and creative way. Like the fact that you have this Falcon that has both the the, the letters, and then you have Snowy trying to chase after him, which once again emphasizes the fact that Snowy is definitely an important character in the film. And on top of that, you have Haddock trying to chase him too, and like there's so much stuff happening in the background. Like there's the 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 dam collapsing, and there's uh, Tintin driving uh, the vehicle or Jeep, the motorcycle. Yeah, motorcycle. And then there's the little gag at the end where the oh, the front of the hotel gets dislocated and and is at the very near the port. And then the, you have the the hotel keeper, I believe, putting the, the the star back on to the the hotel. And it's such a fun little thing that I was surprised with how detailed it was. It's like it is a gumbo pot of everything you love that Spielberg has done, but also from Peter Jackson. And I think that's why that's my favorite set piece in the entire film is because it's not just Spielberg. It's it's everyone, including the writers, pitching in for that sequence. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as say it's one of my favorite action set pieces ever, but it's easily my favorite action sort of beat in this film, as well as probably any other motion capture animated films. It is super thrilling, super exciting, super fun. And, it, you know, it's got the comedic beat of him shooting the, the rocket launcher backwards and everything. It, it just, it all sort of falls into play really well. This is such a perfectly constructed script and and film that beat for beat, moment for moment, it doesn't feel like anything's really wasted. Like, everything on screen is there for a reason. Well, Adam, those sound like the start of Good Final Thoughts if you have anything else to add. Yeah, this movie fucking sucks, dude. You know, the thing is, it's <laughs> Terrible like, movie. Why did we cover it? I'm so sorry we picked it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, you know, go back to Matt's best friend. Yeah, when I think of Belgium, if it's not Van Damme, then I got no fucking interest. <laughs> now, Van Damme's Tintin. That's a movie. <laughs> Arnold is Haddock. It's just like this weird 80s uh, sort of uh, interpretation of come Tintin on. with a bunch of 80s action stars. Yeah, come on, give me the whiskey. <laughs> what are you doing? Come on. My father was a pirate. I have his really bad beard that he sometimes has in movies. 
But it's so bad. I think it's fake too. I don't know that you can actually grow facial hair. Anyways, <laughs> no, this movie's this movie's fantastic. It, it feels like a, a crossbreed between Indiana Jones, the Uncharted games, and the new Tomb Raider games, all sort of rolled into one with a dash of humor thrown in. It, it, it's perfect. It, it's just it's it's basically a perfect film. Well, uh, Sam, what about your final thoughts on uh, the Adventures of Tintin? This has the best ending shot ever. Because it tells you all you need to know, and that Snowy is the hero of the film. Snowy's the key to all of this, to quote George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he's the the missing link, so to say, for Tintin. It's hard to really talk more about this film because you just have to see it. I could tell you how bombastic and how incredible and how great and witty the humor was with a few lines of dialogue, but it's one of those things where you have to watch it and and understand why it's it's this good because it's. It's like I said, it's the epitome of great blockbuster storytelling. Having the characters describe a characterization through their actions rather than just constantly talking about exposition, constantly not having much to do and have there being no chemistry between the main stars. I think that's I'm going to end it there because I'm kind of like being exasperated considering this film is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I agree with everybody that deserves so much more love. I would say it's probably Spielberg's best blockbuster since something like even, you know, a Jurassic Park. Because in between then, he would do stuff like the second Jurassic Park. Even my, something like a Minority Port still feels, despite being big in sci-fi, it's much more like his serious stuff, much more seriously driven. Um, and and he, obviously Indiana Jones looking at the Crystal Skull kind of show that he felt kind of done. And even after this, he would use performance capture and stuff like Sam kind of mentioned, Ready Player One or the BFG. And both those movies feel sort of aimless with how they're using the technology. Aww, I'm bummed out because I really wanted to love BFG. Because <laughs> he's a kaiju, but he's an old man. He's Mark Rylance as a kaiju, what you dreamed of. The, the two films with the kaiju in them are the, the worst Spielberg films com- compared to Tintin. That's saying something for me. That That's very true, yeah. And I just think that with uh, Tintin, he just utilizes this technology in a way that he couldn't really do it with a fully animated movie, couldn't really do it with a fully live-action movie. And like we said, even if we don't get another Tintin, it would be a bummer, because it's been like almost a decade at this point. I get why they probably wouldn't at this point. But I just want Spielberg to go back to kind of doing this motion capture fully world in a way that with like a story that he cares about. It's kind of why I'm not bummed that he bailed out of the Indiana Jones five. They're still trying to do with James Mangold. Now, I think he kind of said everything he had to say about like, at least this particular form of adventure film with Tintin. It just feels like he kind of made his big extravagant, like final word on what a big over the top blockbuster could be with this movie. And I think it deserves a lot more attention and love than it gets. And I can get, especially if you're adverse to motion capture, it might take you a bit to adjust to sort of like the style that's going on here. Because we didn't mention it, like it kind of avoids some of the stuff from the Herge designs where it's like the, the eyes aren't dots anymore. They have like pupils and like the have the realistic motions of people, but also have like these weird like bulbous noses and stuff like that. It can be a bit weird to get adjusted to. But once you do, this movie, it's so fluid that's why I would describe it as, like, every scene feels fluid in a way that just, like, it melts perfectly with the next one, and it just works so perfectly. It's one of my, like, I wouldn't say it's top five Spielberg, but I would say it's even top ten, because it deserves, like, just so much more attention, especially of his recent blockbusters, for sure. But that's the end of our discussion of our two films here, and we'll be uh, doing some picking at the end for next week, so stay tuned for that. But first, we have some feedback to read, because over at DEDBpod on Facebook and Twitter... 
we asked all y'all, hey, what are your uh, favorite and least favorite dog movies in this case? So we had a few contributions, including from James Rodriguez, a friend of the show, says... The John Wick series uh, wouldn't be thriving today without prominent dog in the first film, so that's my justification. Excellent standalone feature as Keanu embodies all dog owners. Uh, Wallace and Gromit in The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, the plasticine dog is a national treasure in that love letter to old hammer horror. I liked the Scooby-Doo film from 2002. It felt like an imperfect precursor to the self-referential Lord and Miller movies uh, that would later be much better. Uh, with actual wit to it. Less so for Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, uh, which is just boring. Uh, My dog's purpose is dull. Also, fuck Marley and me and the Queen's Corgi. Christian Alvarez says some of the best dogs in movies are Baxter from Anchorman, Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Snowy from The Adventures of Tintin, Gromit from Wallace and Gromit, and of course, Toto from The Wizard of Oz. Worse would probably be Marley from Marley and Me, the dogs from Look Who's Talking Now, wasting the immense talents of Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton, and of course Karate Dogs, featuring the talents of Chevy Chase. Um, and then Brian Kane says, A Bully and His Dog is one of my favorite post-apocalyptic movies, a comically nihilistic story that heavily influenced the tone of Wasteland and Fallout game franchises. Sergeant Stubby is a recent low-budget animated movie that was criminally underrated by pretty much everyone. It's a mostly true story about a U.S. Army dog that gives the due respect to its depiction of the Great War. And I haven't seen many dog movies, the few of which I've seen were as a child, like Air Bud. I don't recall thinking of them fondly. Well, time to rethink that. <laughs> Sam's a big fan of the entire Air Bud franchise, I'm sure. Golden Receiver. Yes. When he played soccer. <laughs> um, the Air Buddies spinoff movies in particular, I'm sure. I have totally watched every Air Bud film, darts eyes back and forth. That's your new podcast. It's just like Air Budden. Oh, God. Just where, yeah, where I revisit all the Air Bud films. Co-hosted by Joe Budden. Um, <laughs> do you guys have any other dogs that you can think of, like when you, they were important to this, to the plot of the movie or to the character? The only one I can think of, really, that wasn't named is that uh, Dinky D, uh, Road Warrior, and the first Man Max, Max's True. dog. I would agree. Love that dog. You know, this this kind of brings up a problem I have with like movies like Marley and Me and other films, including I Am Legend. I'm throwing in here where the the dog doesn't stops becoming a character and just becomes a plot device to have the main character be motivated because the dog just with spoilers the dog dies although like, that's in an i am legend when he does have to kill the dog that's a good scene i just think it's 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 a lazy thing to like just have, kill off your, your 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 dog who's also a character just because it just create this dramatic tension or this anxiety for your main character and that's what the lot the problem with a lot of these dog films and and uh, uh, Christian made a good point about Baxter and, and Anchorman, who, by the way, once again, Baxter controls the third act of that film with the bears. <laughs> right. That's true, yes. Gromit has to be my favorite dog character because Gromit does so much for Wallace. Like, it's insane. Wallace is over here like, jeez, Gromit. And then Gromit's like, oh, this motherfucker. I have to save his ass from the were-rabbits. <laughs> I also love Buster in the Toy Story movies, two and three. Or one and two, I'm sorry. Well, no, well, in three he's in it too. He's well, all old. Well, well, no, he's he's not in he's not in one. At the very end, they say, "Look, we have a puppy," and then he's in two and three. Yeah, right. Yeah, two and three. Yeah, I love Buster. You know, and the thing is, uh, you know, of course, nobody mentioned it, but fucking Snoopy, for God's sakes, you know, oh, is probably the, mo the yeah. most iconic of the sort of dogs. Maybe next to Toto. Toto's pretty iconic. Oh, and also, like to speak to Toy Story, I think we would argue uh, Slinky Dog, sir. It has the voice of Jim Varney. That's true. The thing is, Sam, to, to speak on what you said, you know, like killing off the dogs in a movie and stuff, I, I do agree that a lot of times it's literally done just for, like, 
sympathy values, but it can also be a powerful motivator at the same time. If it's done correctly and it's done for a reason, it doesn't bother me. But when it's done just to be like, this kid, he's so alone now. He had to kill his best friend. I agree. It's cheap and it's it's an emotional sort of, uh, it's just a manipulative tool. Well, my, my kind of argument for that is that I wouldn't agree, but I've seen it done so many times in a lot of dog films, especially recent dog films, like not just Marley and Me, but uh, A Dog's Purpose, I think is another one. So many of them always have to like wind up with some sort of weird uh, a suffer scene for the dog to go through. It's just like, look how rough this dog has had it. You just know it's going to die at a certain point in the film. You you can read into it in the in the first like ten minutes of the film, and that happens a lot of times to to a point where yeah. I'm not willing to forgive it as much as I used to. Because like you said, it worked in I Am Legend, but it's it worked in kind of a cheap way for me. No, I get that. I, I would even say like it, it depends on like you can have animals sort of in a perilous situation, but actually still treat them like characters. Like I would say one that wasn't mentioned a, a couple technically here, but uh, Fly and Rex from Babe, the two sheepdogs that raise Babe. Oh, absolutely. Great examples of, like, dog characters that you really feel invested in, whether it's, like, Fly kind of, like, having this emotional hole in her because her dogs, her puppies have been given away, or Rex with just the fact that he's, like, become older and he can't, really doesn't really have as much control and things are changing around him because Babe is becoming the sheepdog pig. Uh, but I think that's a great example. Um, another one I would like to spotlight just because I love how this dog is utilized in this very weird movie, uh, Milo from uh, The Mask. Uh, yes i literally thought you were gonna say milo and otis no i would not mention that because that's a bad i mean as a bad example maybe more for the production maybe adam yeah. just mention play dogs while you're at it <laughs> what about chance and shadow from homeward bound it's been so long since i've seen those fucking movies <laughs> they they could be a very important tool you know uh, mel gibson's character at his dog in the lethal weapon movies now granted Mel Gibson is Mel Gibson, but it's still, that was his one remaining thing that he had with his wife. And it not necessarily played a prominent role, but it was important to the character. Or even John Wick was mentioned by James earlier, which, which makes sense. Yeah. But also credit also though, to the sequels do a pretty good, especially three had a lot of great, like dog characters that would actually get involved in the action. Like that whole sequence where it's Halle Berry, John Wick, and those dogs mauling people. Really good example of that. They're just eating so many dicks. Oh, oh my God! I just, I just remembered the the dog from John Carter of Mars. I actually do like. I do like the dog in John Carter of Mars. Right, the alien dog. Because yeah, the alien dog. Yeah. Um, I know that's a weird pick. I know people may disagree with me. I just love how absurd that dog, that alien dog is. I don't think enough people have seen John Carter to disagree or agree with you, Sam. <laughs> I think you're just like, what? I agree, because I like that movie, believe it or not. That movie just suffered from the fact that it's based on 100-year-old source material that everything ripped off <laughs> afterward. Well, it also suffered from the fact that they called it John Carter instead of John right. Carter of Mars. Right, right, of course. They uh, should have called John Carter of Mars, because you're like, oh, this is going to be a crazy movie. I agree with that. But before we get off of at least mentioning some ones, one I wanted to give a shout out to a more recent dog star who had like a massive two films in one year turn is um, Olivia, the dog who was in both Game Night, where uh, she's the dog of Jesse Plemons, who is like, it's such a funny sidekick, him with that fucking dog. And then also she was Viola Davis's dog in Widows. Ah. She's so great in that sequence with uh, Viola Davis and Brian Tyree Henry where he's being threatening to the dog, but not actually hurting the dog at that point. It's, I think she's, but Olivia, big star coming up. Big dog star. <laughs> Need more. Watch out for Olivia. 2021 Oscars. Proper dog representation of films. Yep. 
Yes, <laughs> for sure. But uh, we want to thank all of you for the feedback you submitted. We also want to thank some other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and after music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, thanks, of course, to all you patrons, you edgelords. Yeah! Over at patreon.com slash dedbpod. Where for just $1 a month, you all get to um, you know participate in polls where you pick either topics like this one or specific movies we do for the show. And uh, also get bonus podcast episodes uh, that we do one a month uh, for the Patreon. Uh, we'll be having our trivia game coming up soon uh, where we uh, do a twist on what we did previously back in August and have some fun with the format. Which uh, will be very interesting to see how that uh, transpires when we have Adam, myself, and a mysterious third guest. It's not Sam. He's terrible at trivia. I know. I'm still practicing my NPR voice. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Uh, But, of course, we do want to thank you, even though you're not the best at trivia, Sam. You're great about talking about dog movies on this episode. We appreciate it so much. And uh, where can the people find you and your work on the internet? Um, So I'm on The Lounging Lizard, and I started up a couple of neat little side projects, uh, along with the fact that, um, once again, my book is available on Amazon, The Quietest Breaker, Brother Death. Please give it a look if you can. Um, But I also have started up a couple of... short stories one called tonal travesty tales where i begin uh the first part of the short story with just a standard setup for it so in this case it's done in a way supernatural uh, a way like think of twilight or something like that but the catch is each part has to have something drastically changed so in the second part of the story the main hot dude who's a love interest who who kind of is similar to edward talks like super mario and then the third part, one of the main characters changes to a manatee and drinks a big gulp with seaweed in it. I'm trying to prevent a hat-on-a-hat situation with this by trying to make a very serious but straightforward story that you've seen before, but done in a way where something about it has to change and make it seem interesting. And then I'm working on another short story called Path of the Recycled One, uh, about a wandering, empty um, water bottle that ventures through sort of like a weird sort of Celtic adventure in uh, the backyard garden and meets some... Very strange figures, maybe garden ornaments that are sentient, and there's a lot of weird stuff with that. I should mention that I did not write that one on any sort of drugs. I just was like, I want to write a short story about this water bottle on my desk, and I did. No, that's true. Having known Sam for about a decade, that's the thing, is that like all these stories sound like they would be. Like, oh man, what sort of like, crazed, deranged maniac wrote these? It's like, no, that's Sam. I buy it. That sounds exactly like a story Sam would do. Yeah. Which makes it, he has very yep. unique writing. I would definitely recommend. Uh, we'll have links, I'm sure, both to that and uh, the Amazon for your uh, book in particular in the description. Cool. But um, we also uh, want to encourage you all to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, that's where we put up the feelers for our questionnaires and stuff. You can also uh, email us feedback if you'd like. Uh, doubleedgedoublewheel at gmail.com all spelled out we should mention this we haven't really um because this is a recent invention for the eso network um but you can buy merchandise with our logo on it now over on uh, tpublic.com slash stores slash the dash eso dash broadcasting dash network i'll probably have a link in the description for this as well but you can buy masks or t-shirts or even coffee mugs with our logo on it. I actually got my coffee cup in the mail recently, um, and I've been drinking coffee out of it, and it's quite lovely. I would definitely recommend anybody, especially it helps us out, but we get a bit of commission if enough people buy it. But you can also uh, find me doing some individual uh, stuff on social media on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd as uh, at Tommy. 
or um, I'll post my individual musings. And also I do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com where I do, uh, you know, some reviews and lists and stuff. I would have just published recently an early review for the movie Nomadland starring Frances McDormand, which has a lot of Oscar buzz for it. And I kind of agree. It's pretty amazing. One of my favorite movies of the year. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at uh, Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. I don't really do a lot on there. I'll post some silly pictures of stuff I paint or, you know, just random bullshit on Instagram and Twitter. Basically, I just share the show, but I will also share anything you want me to share as well. I may share robot. And uh, you know what? I'm comfortable with that. You know what I mean? That's my choice. I'm a grown man. I made that decision. I'm sticking with it. Yes, and of course your uh, Haddock-style drunken tweets, I'm sure, at about 2 in the morning are also fun on the, the Twitter. Yeah, side. yeah, that'll happen. They're real gems. No, they're not. They're really not. <laughs> it's really depressing and sad, especially because I only got like 40 followers and nobody reacts to them. I'm like, I'm so utterly alone. Except for just like Thomas liked it. Like, of course Thomas liked it. <laughs> of course he's up at 2 a.m. as well. Yeah, Thomas throws me a bone. Oh. Don't worry, you'll get Lady Gaga to follow you. I'm sure, yes. It'll, it'll work. But you know what? If you want to be like Lady Gaga and subscribe to our podcast, which I'm sure she does, you can subscribe to us on Absolutely. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. If you're on the ESO network here listening, why not dig into the other shows that are here, or even into our Podbean archive, our main feed, where we have a solid 70 or so episodes from uh, before we uh, join the ESO network uh, that are there for you to enjoy. And if nothing else, if you could rate, review, or just share the show around, that helps us out and gets more visibility. Yes, please be the Bradley Cooper to our Lady Gaga. <laughs> Take us out of the shallows now. <laughs> you got the two hosts and the executive producer on the show right now. We, we all just want you to just share it, you know? More money Sam makes is the more money we make. So just help us out. Yes, money that he makes with the show. Yeah. Yes. Sam is so rich. It's not even funny. I pay I pay him in Chuck E. Cheese tokens. So, yeah, it's buttons and like lint. Like it's a it's an old butter cookie tin. <laughs> but it's filled with treasures. That's his safety deposit box. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm doing a weird sort of uh, uh, a massive pizza uh, currency scheme right now where I'm transferring different tokens between Domino's, uh, Chuck E. Cheese, Peter Popper Pizzas, and I'm I'm doing a lot with that. If you want, you know, the good stuff, come to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we do the picking, I just wanted to have a brief mention here, get a bit serious before we end the show, just because, um, Sydney, my oldest dog, she was almost up there, like, 20-something years, she was, uh, you know, a bit blind, and she was kind of losing her senses. She unfortunately passed away this week that we're talking uh, about dog movies, kind of a cruel, ironic twist of fate to a certain extent, but I just wanted to briefly say it here at the end of the show, after we had a bit more of our yucks, and just uh, dedicate this particular episode to Sydney. Absolutely. The show is for Sydney. 100%. Yes. Yep. But now, before we leave, we have to do our picking for next week, Adam. And uh, next week uh, has gone through a bunch of different changes in terms of what we're going to do. Because for yes. the first time in ages, we have a topic that's actually relevant to a movie that's coming out that people can see. What? Yes, uh, we are going to be doing uh, returning to the world of DC in honor of Wonder Woman 1984 is finally coming out on HBO Max with all those interesting kind of uh, release strategies that are going on with that. And so we're going back to DC, but we've already done it twice, so we had to make some kind of specific 
corner that we wanted to cover. And so we decided uh, we're going to do specifically the DCEU as a topic. So that would be the recent DC series that Wonder Woman is a part of that started with Man of Steel and has gone on to be um, one of the more mixed bag franchises of late, to say the least. That's being pretty kind. Mixed bag is a polite way of saying it. <laughs> There's a lot of mediocre. Right. A couple really bad and a couple, yeah, it's, it's pretty good in comparison. I think you're really doing yourself a disservice by not including more than the DCU films. Like, come on, Steel. It's right there. <laughs> oh, we've done those, though. We've done. Oh, fuck. Well, then. Yeah, the... well, well, not Steel. Well, not Steel. Which I'm no, sure. We haven't done Steel. No, that's true. That was an alternate choice, I believe. Right, I think Sam was clamoring for Steel at some point. The next time Sam comes on, we probably have to do Steel. It's our Shaq episode <laughs> that we'll do Steel on. Oh my <laughs> god, I would do a Shaq episode. Are you a fan of the DCEU at all, Sam? Um, if it includes Shaq in the films, then yes. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, in all honesty, um, you know, mixed bag, like everyone said. Adam has two good movies related to this topic. I have two bad. We've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for each of our two picks. And so, uh, usually we would guess from each other's picks and end up, you know, whichever is closest we do, one is the good feature, one is the bad feature, but I guess, like, Sam gets to go ahead and, uh, you know, do the dog thing where the dog has to come to either one owner or the other, like the end of Airbud, and it's just like, come on, boy, you gotta come to either one inside of these. So, Sam, which number are you picking for Adam's two good choices? Okay, so I'm gonna go with eight. Alrighty. At number nine, I have uh, one that I feel got a lot of hate and wasn't seen as as much as I think it should have been, but I think it's really fun. I have Birds of Prey. All right, cool. Very or the fabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, well, whatever Harley the fuck. <laughs> uh, whatever the hell. But yeah, I have Birds of Prey. At number two, I had Aquaman. Yeah, Aquaman's a lot of fun. It's got an octopus playing drums. And it has Patrick Wilson, uh, who's supposed to be younger than Jason Momoa. And that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's true. a good point. It's like, why is he younger? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, speaking of not making sense, I got two bad ones here, Sam. Go ahead. Number between one and ten for these two. All right. Um, I usually go with four, because four is my favorite number. So four again. All right. At number two, I have... Uh, I guess technically one of the more divisive comic book movies, if you believe uh, some people on the internet. Um, one of many reasons why 2016 wasn't a good year. I have it. We're doing it. It's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, everybody. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Yep. And the thing is, I've seen that movie twice. I'm going to have to rewatch it because I remember zero about it. <laughs> How can you ever forget? <laughs> Certain things are seared into my brain for the wrong reasons. I remember Cherry, Jolly Ranchers, and uh, Jam Jars of Piss. That's I remember true. that. Jesse Eisenberg, <laughs> right, the best Lex Luthor of our time. Very true. Ever. Yep. Ever. ever. <laughs> but then at number seven, I had, uh, speaking of 2016 and bad DC movies, I had Suicide Squad. Oh, fuck. It would have been very complimentary with the other film. No, well, that's true, but maybe we've been repeating some things here. We're, we're going with two very different films. In this very odd, weird franchise. Uh, That's true. But uh, on that, everybody, is the end of the show. And uh, we just want to say, sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog. Oh, that's a deep... (laughs) That's a super deep cut. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's so stupid. Good night, everybody. Good night.
has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.